we pick up here in the midst of where we began last week in chapter 38. Chapters 38, 39, uh, 40, and 41, of course, give to us finally the response now of God uh, to Job specifically and to his friends that had gathered around him that were trying to help him process this tremendous suffering and the season of hardship that he's been going through, the many different ways that Job's experienced loss and pain and hardship, and it's been going on for a prolonged period of time. We know at least months uh, this was going on in Job's life. And if you remember last time as we began chapter 38, as the Lord finally answered, uh, it tells us that he just began to ask Job a series of questions. In fact, if you kind of go through and count up, there's at least about 70 or so questions that God just begins to ask of Job. And it's almost as if what God's doing is uh, he's sort of to some degree, I think, with Job as well as the uh, four different individuals who were proposing their different thoughts and ideas and their insights on what God must have been doing or what was happening in Job's life. Again, none of them even being aware uh, of chapters 1 and 2, the experience and dialogue that was happening in the eternal dimension between God and Satan and what God was permitting uh, Satan to some degree to do to bring some sufferings into Job's life as one of the Lord's servants. Uh, being fully unaware of those things, it's almost as if as they began to uh, contend with God and say, you know, and Job even himself, you know, I wish I could have an audience with God and understand why these things were going on. It's almost as if God says, look, since everybody on earth thinks they know how to do my job so well, how about we have a God SAT test and, and maybe just 70 questions or so. <laughs> and it's almost as if God just begins to then ask these questions of Job and of uh, his friends and, and probably to some degree those of us even now still in humanity who sometimes think that we have the audacity to question God. You know, if somehow we're going to get somewhere with that, uh, is if somehow we're going to question God or put God to the test and that we're going to prove that God's not righteous and we're righteous or that God's wrong and that somehow we're right as human beings uh, and that somehow there would be a degree of success in questioning God. It's almost as if God says, look, how about I ask a few questions and, and it's almost as if maybe this is a, a test. You know, can you pass the God test? And if you can pass this test, then okay, then you can unseat me. And how about you take over running the whole world? How about you take over running the whole universe if you could even begin to answer these 70 questions? And certainly there are a very limited scope of all the questions God probably could ask, or the book of Job could potentially be as long as probably the entire uh, Holy Scriptures that we have in the record of its pages. But uh, God begins to ask these questions about creation. Remember, God asked him questions. You know, Job, where were you? Uh, were you around? I don't remember you being a part of the board meeting between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and the angels there witnessing as we were coming up with our plans for creation and the universe and how things would work in nature and the hydraulic system and controlling weather patterns and and, and how about all the, the, the galaxies and the stars and, and controlling everything that goes on in the solar systems, uh, even outside of your little tiny Milky Way there and all these you know, incredible things that we not only created, but we're continually controlling. And then he began to ask him about the different animals and if he understood how those things worked and so forth and taking care of them. And as we come to chapter 39, again, God just continues now with this process. He says, chapter 39, verse 1, he says, Job, and do you know the time when the wild mountain goats bear young? Or can you mark when the deer gives birth? Do you keep track of that? Are you fully aware of each deer every time that one deer gives birth to another? And of course, we know that's a pretty prolific thing. You know, one of the reasons why in some ways, you know, it is permitted for people even to go out and hunt and get uh, licensed to hunt for deers. And I came from, you know, being in Pennsylvania for 13 years where, I mean, people there were some pretty avid hunters. I mean, to the degree where, I mean, when uh, it was opening season to go out hunting, literally they shut down their schools all day long. Because they knew there'd be such absenteeism between the teachers and the students. I thought it was the most bizarre thing. I'm originally from southern New Jersey. So when I first got there and it was like, well, what's the school closed for? Oh, well, it's the first day of hunting season. I mean, nobody will show up anyway. So they literally, because there was such an avid dedication uh, to want to go out and hunting. And again, part of that too, recognize, is there was a need to kind of somewhat manage the population uh, of the deer because they gave birth and they were so prolific that it kept uh, to a degree that under control 
so that you didn't have more deers hopping out of the woods and things didn't kind of become overcome, uh, there was a degree of almost encouragement to go out and to hunt and to kind of just manage the population level. So he says, uh, Job, do you understand? Do you know the time of how these things happen? And can you mark, do you got a record, Job? Are you, are you keeping track as I am up here of each and every deer? Are you keeping track of the birth records of each one? Can you number the months, he says, that they fulfill? Or do you know the time when they bear their young? They bow down. They bring forth their young. They deliver their offspring. Their young ones are healthy. They grow strong with grain and they depart and do not return to them. So he speaks of just the, again, the birthing cycle of, you know, the, the deer and how much they are continuing to, you know, just populate the area. And he says, Job, you, know, you see these things to a degree, but do you really understand how they all work? Do you fully comprehend, you know, did you set forth the cycles of, you know, how they would, uh, you know, procreate and populate and how long it would be in gestation and giving birth? Are you keeping track of all that? I mean, the only thing we really know about deer is that, that they jump in front of our car once in a while. To some degree, that's about the deepest amount of knowledge I know I have about them. And so he's asking Job, he says, you know, do you understand all these things and you keep in track of it all, the records and the marks of all these kind of things? And interesting, repeatedly, he's saying there in verse one through four, you notice the continual reference, verse one, Job, do you know the time when the mountain goats bear young? Can you mark out when, the, again, the time frame is when the deer gives birth? Can you number the months? Do you know the time, he says, verse two, when they bear their young? It's almost as if, again, God's saying, Job, uh, you know, one of the things that is different between you and I as God and as a human being is uh, I have perfect timetables for everything. And I do all things even to the, to the process of the gestation and the, you know, the giving of, of birth among the deer. God, he's saying I as God control the timetables of all these things. This is just one species, Job. And think of the variables of, again, how the different gestation cycles, even among different animals that God has created in creation as comparison to us as humans. And again, even in that, you know, we have approximations of okay, about how long, you know, 40 weeks. But God's saying, I have those timetables all under my control, and I am picking and controlling the specific time that each deer actually gives birth uh, to its baby. And he's saying... Job, what you fail to recognize is my timetable is different than yours. Part of what frustrates us as human beings, is it not, is because, as we've talked about before, that reality of that we live in a time realm continuum and God lives outside of that. And all of time is in God's hands. And the way that God works is even much different than us. Again, the Bible tells us with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years to him is like a day. Lord, what's taken so long? It feels like I've been in this situation for thousands of years i feel like lord it's been two thousand years and god goes from an eternal perspective it's only been about two days feels like a thousand years to you but again there's that gap of variation between god who's infinite and us who are, and that's what frustrates us and particularly when it comes to right suffering and hardships that we go through we don't understand god's timetables with things and if we try and overly figure that out what happens i just get more confused i don't know about you it just makes me get more confused and more perplexed because I don't understand God's timetables. God, how is it in this situation? It seems like it happened faster than I wanted it to, right? And that happens sometimes. God, why did that happen so fast? Why not more time? And then in another situation, God, what's taking you so long? I mean, I've been praying about this forever, Lord. And what's taking, did you lose my file or something? And, you know, it, it, what's taking so long? But again, there is that thing, particularly when it's not fully understanding how God's working. And so again, he's just reminding Job here, Job, if you can't even understand these things, can you really figure out exactly what I'm doing in all of my ways and my works? He says, verse five, going on again with this testing resume here, he says, Job, uh, who was it that set the wild donkey free? Are, are you in control of even things like that? He says, who loosed the bonds of the onager? whose home I have made in the wilderness and the barren land, his dwelling. Job, did you determine where these animals distinctively would make their dwelling places and where they would lodge? You can think of among creation, the different places and locations where animals will choose to lodge and make their different dwelling places according to their distinctiveness and the nature 
and again, the need they have for survival. He says, verse 7, who is it that scorns the tumult of the city? He does not heed the shouts of the driver. The range of the mountain is his pasture, and he searches after every green thing. He is searching for food. He asks, verse 9, will the wild ox be willing to serve you? Will he be bed by your manger? Now, interesting. Will the wild ox be willing to serve you? Now, we try and tame animals, right? To some degree, you know, you, you use a donkey, they would, and, and you'd use an ox or an animal like that maybe, or a horse, right? You know, pull plows in an agrarian society when they work fields and so forth. We try our best to tame these animals. But again, at the end of the day, we realize that God's declaring all of these things serve my purposes as creator. And as they function and do the things they do, he says, are, are they willing to serve you before they serve me? But yet, again, this is what, remember, blew away the minds of the disciples when Jesus would even, like, calm the winds and the waves in the middle of the storm, and they would be there dripping wet with the water dripping off of them after a storm just settled instantaneously and say, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And again, the astonishment, the idea is that creation, creation, just a storm, Jesus would just speak to a storm and creation would obey its creator. And when we think of that, or even what's being said here by God to Job, will the wild ox be willing to serve you? God's reminding them that these animals all recognize their creator. Now, doesn't that make us kind of scratch our head a little bit that if the animals, like a wild ox, or we might say a dumb donkey, or wind and waves, if they acknowledge their creator, and they submit themselves and serve their creator, how much more as human beings who have a much better thinking capacity and a much more awakened conscience to God and to his presence, ought we to serve the purposes of God and serve God as our creator? Whether we fully understand at times how God's working or what he's doing, the very fact of the recognition of him as our creator should prompt us. If the wild ox serves him, certainly as human beings, we should serve him. He says, Job, can you as well, verse 10, he asked, can you bind the wild ox in the furrow with ropes? Can you fully control it? Or will he plow the valleys behind you? Will you trust him because his strength is great? Or will you leave your labor to him? Will you trust him to bring home your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? Again, he's saying, look, you may utilize these animals in a farming capacity as human beings. Again, man was told to, you know, subdue the earth. And we are, you know, God has given to us that role as human beings to fill the earth and subdue it. And the animal kingdom is to be subject to us according to God's original design and creation. But he's saying at the end of the day, Job, are, are, are you trusting those things like the animals to make sure that your field is plowed and that your crops come in and that you have provision? Or are you looking to me as Yahweh God, Jehovah Jireh, to ultimately be your provider? Because if I don't give that animal its strength and I don't give that animal the ability to submit to you and pull your plow and so on and so forth, he's saying, Job, are, are you trusting in him to bring forth your grain? You, you guys, you need to trust me to bring forth your grain, he's saying. Ultimately, you need to trust me to be your provider, whether, again, it's the land producing or the seed blossoming forth or the animals working the field. Again, that recognition that God is ultimately, whether it's providing for the animal kingdom or providing for us, He's our ultimate source. He then, verse 13, goes on to speak of, again, other animals in the midst of creation. He now transitions, verse 13. He says, notice, the wings of the ostrich wave proudly. Now, again, the ostrich is the largest bird. But, but look what God is going to talk about here. As he talks about now the ostrich, he draws Job's attention. Again, think of how many different animals God could have picked to discuss, he says, the wings, and notice that word wings, because this is important. The wings of the ostrich, they wave proudly, but are her wings and pinions like the kindly storks? In other words, what does the stork do? Well, it drops off babies, right? right? So it has to fly. Storks are known to fly. What he's saying is storks, like all other birds, they have wings and they use their wings to do what we think birds do, which is to fly. The one unique thing about an ostrich, it is the largest bird. It has wings and it don't fly. <laughs> and, and, and God says, uh, did you make it like that or did I make it like that? And he's saying, do you understand? Why would I create a bird without, without the ability to fly, but yet I gave it wings? 
And Job and his friends would have to scratch their heads and say, I, that's a good point. Why, why would a bird have wings and not be able to fly? Only God knows. But that's the way God determined to do it. And see, what does that remind us of? Again, mystery. He's saying, Job, you can't even figure, can you figure that out? Can you figure out why the largest bird that I ever created of all the birds has wings, but it doesn't even fly. Instead, it runs on two feet. And he's saying, if you can't figure that out, Job, do you really think you should challenge me and try and figure everything else out that's going on in your life and torture yourself thinking that you deserve the right to have the answers to everything or that if you just push hard enough, you're going to get the answers to everything? He's saying, Job, there's such a gap between you and I. You just got to trust I'm God. You just got to trust my sovereignty, that I have things under control. He says the wings of the ostrich, they, they, they flap proudly, but they're not even able to get it off the ground. For she leaves, on top of that, verse 14, she, the ostrich, leaves her eggs on the ground and warms them in the dust. So this is giving birth to her young. But verse 15, she forgets that a foot may crush them or that a wild beast may break them that has come and steal the eggs for food or break them and, and put an end to the young that she just gave birth to, or, or in essence gave the, whatever, the passing of the egg is. You got the concept. Verse 16, she treats her young harshly. Now, this apparently is true of the way that ostriches treat their young. She treats her young harshly as though they were not hers. <laughs> her labor is in vain without concern. And look at this, verse 17. The Holy Spirit says, because God deprived her of wisdom and did not endow herself with understanding. In other words, it's speaking of how the ostrich, the largest bird, would give you know, uh, you know, birth to these eggs and then basically have very little maternal instinct like any mother would have to care for them, to protect them. He says, you know, at the end of the day, you know, sh she doesn't pay attention about stepping on her eggs herself. She doesn't protect them, that others would step on them and crush them. And God says the reason is because he deprived that ostrich of wisdom and didn't endow it with understanding. In other words, God created it that way. God made it dumb. And he's saying, Job, do you know why I made it dumb? Do you know why the ostrich isn't real smart? Why it doesn't have a maternal instinct? Most other animals have very strong maternal instincts, right? You don't rob a bear of her cubs. You know, we, we understand. I mean, but he's saying, why is the ostrich like that? And again, yeah, that is strange. Why would, an, why would a mommy ostrich make eggs and then not take care of them? I don't know. And he's saying, right, Job, see, you're failing the God test. <laughs> I know why I did it that way. You don't even understand ostriches. Why are they made the way they are? We don't know why they're made the way they are. It's one of the mysteries of the way that God has done things. Verse 18, when she lifts herself on high, she scorns the horse and its rider. Now, what that means, scorns the horse and its rider, what it's in, the implication of language is scorns the horse and its rider in the sense that it can move faster than the horse and its rider. And again, what we do know of ostriches, they're the largest bird with these proud, flapping, crazy wings, and they can run up to 40 miles per hour. That's faster than a horse. That's why it's saying can scorn the horse rider. So here's the ostrich outrunning the horse, which was known to be used for battle and everything. And he's saying, do you know why it's that way? Why can the thing run that fast? Because God created it that way. And so again, God's continuing to bring these things before Job to get him to realize all of the marvels of his greatness and his wisdom and how he's done things creatively. He says, verse 19, and Job, have you given the horse strength? Now he's going to talk about not the horse that was used for farming, but he's going to talk about the battle horse now. Those horses that would run directly into war, if you think of the ways they would engage in combat in that day. I mean, just you know, on foot, on horses, charging in, sword, spears. I mean, it wasn't standing at a distance and firing, you know, machine guns and, uh, you know, cannons and so forth with artillery from afar. I mean, this was direct, wild. I mean, you watch those movies, the night kind of movies where they are just running into battle and just swinging swords and horses all around. And again, you would think any horse would say after the first time, no, I'm bigger than you, spank my bottom all you want. I'm not running in that blood fest again, right? I mean, wouldn't a horse, I mean, you would think that, I mean, a horse can overpower a human being very easily. But look what he says. Have you given the horse strength? 
clothe its neck with thunder. The idea is the strength of the horse. Can you frighten him like a locust? His majestic snorting strikes terror. The picture there is like the horse snorting, ready. It's almost like they're snorting. They're ready to go into battle. He paws in the valley and rejoices in his strength. He gallops into the clash of arms. The idea is fearless, like a war horse just running right into the battle. He mocks at fear and is not frightened, nor does he turn back from the sword. The quiver rattles against him, the glittering spear and javelin. He devours the distance with the fierceness and rage, nor does he come to a halt because the trumpet has sounded. At the blast of the trumpet, he says, aha, he smells the battle from afar, the thunder of captains and shouting. So again, the uniqueness of the courage of that horse, that it just instinctively is almost like you know sniffing out the, the scent of battle and willing to just run right into the midst of it in the midst of these warfare and conflicts that would be going on, that it wouldn't run the opposite direction, which again, one would think would be the case. He says, verse 26, now referring to other animals in creation, does the hawk fly by your wisdom and spread its wings toward the south? In other words, again, the, the migration pattern, spreading its wings towards the south. Did, Job, do you understand why birds operate in the migration patterns that they do and that they you know, take the you know, routes and courses that they do as they fly? And is that hawk able to fly because you came up with a great idea before the Orville brothers, you know, how to make the hawk fly? And, okay, here's how you're going to use your wings. He says, did you create that or did I, Joe? Who came up with the, you know, capacity to instinctively build that creature in the way that it did? He says, that hawk flies by my wisdom. Does the eagle, he says, verse 27, mount up at your command? And make its nest on high. And again, that's what eagles do. They, they nest very high up. And they have, you know, if you ever do a little research, I mean, eagles have incredible eyesight. And they make their nest super, super high up. But yet they look down and, and their eyes are incredibly sophisticated to be able to see their prey and then just catch the updraft and whoom, just come swooping down to capitalize on their prey. He says, does the eagle mount up at your command to make its nest on high? Or the rock, he says, it dwells and resides, or the crag of the rock and the stronghold. From there, look what it says, as I just referenced, from there it spies out its prey with incredible eyesight. Its eyes observe from afar. Its young ones suck up blood, and where the slain are, there it is. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? That's a tough question. He who rebukes God, let him answer. In other words, do you really want to go for correction? Is that really what you think you should do by challenging God with your thoughts or your words? Think that somehow you're going to correct Almighty God. Would that ever, he says, be successful? And Job answered, as no doubt we would as well, Job answered the Lord at the end of all that constant questioning from God's throne to him. He says, behold, I am vile. The idea is I am undone. I am worthless, insignificant. God, I'm not just wrong. I'm a mess. God, I am vile. I, I am lower than I actually thought I was. Again, what happens? He has an experience with God, and it brings tremendous humility into his life. And we said it all throughout the word of God. When someone has a true experience with God, they're not spiritually arrogant. They're humble. So you show me someone who's truly on fire for the Lord, someone who's had a real spiritual experience. Their condition afterwards is humility, brokenness in spirit, humility, not somebody jumping around in some hyper... That, when people had an experience with God, they ended up flat on their faces. They were overwhelmed. They were humbled. Remember Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah had his encounter with the Lord, it says that in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and, and, and he heard glory, glory, glory. And, and what did Isaiah do? Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm undone. Again, how interesting. You know, as I say that, even just you know, in relation to time... King Uzziah was one of the good and godly kings in the days of Israel. 
So he did a lot of good and moral and righteous things to help the nation. Again, remember, there'd be good kings and bad kings, good kings and bad kings, righteous kings and unrighteous kings. And it would go back and forth throughout Israel's history. King Uzziah was one of the good ones. And no doubt, Isaiah, again, he was already in his prophetic ministry. And Isaiah and others probably, you know, when you're a prophet or a person of God, you appreciate a King Uzziah on the throne, right? Hey, that guy's orchestrating righteous things, moral things. But, but Isaiah says, but in the year that God took him away, God let him die. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on his throne. I looked beyond the throne of Uzziah, and I got my eyes off of Uzziah, and I realized nobody unseated Jehovah God. Oh, he's, oh, that's the right throne. That's the real throne. And it was in that moment as Uzziah was taken away, he says, that's when I saw the Lord. Maybe he was looking a little bit too much at Uzziah, I don't know. And he saw the Lord, and he was humbled and broken. And he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. Again, it wasn't, why are all these people saying this stuff? I'm messed up, man. I'm saying stuff I shouldn't be saying. I need to humble myself before the Lord. And interestingly enough, it was that year that King Uzziah was died and he was taken away, that Isaiah was humbled. He was already doing ministry. He was already a prophet. But what happened? He doubled down all the more. And then he said, here am I, Lord, send me. Send me, God. Use my life in some way to a greater degree. And, you know, I think sometimes those are the outcomes of those kind of situations. Here, Job, again, think about it. I mean, the guy's been through a lot. But when he started having a genuine, powerful encounter with the Lord, Job already in his pain and suffering, his brokenness is always going through. I mean, look at his statements here. I am vile, God. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. In other words, I can't believe I even said anything at all. Again, just the idea of putting his hand over his mouth, I should have never contended or questioned you, God. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. In other words, God, I need to stop saying so much, and I need to just start listening to you more. Maybe I need to say a lot less and listen a lot more, he says, God, even in the midst of this. Again, beautiful to see the effect that this had upon Job's life. Well, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind a second time and said to him, now, same statement as we saw before at the beginning, now prepare yourself like a man. In other words, Job, have courage, stand up, you know, be a man, man up and receive what I want to say to you. Prepare yourself like a man and I will question you and you shall answer me. Would you indeed annul my judgment, he says? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? Boy, is is that a a good statement. Job, would it benefit you to condemn or question me just to justify yourself as a person? To prove that you're right, would you be willing to prove that I'm wrong? He says, would that that be of any benefit to you? He says, verse 9, have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? Boy, you know. Does does Job have an everlasting arm like God with the power and the strength to do what God does with his arm and his, you know, mighty power to do things? Again, the the arm of the Lord is able to do incredibly powerful things, and yet it's those same arms, the Bible says, that, that are underneath his everlasting arms, even upholding us and comforting us, even in the midst of our hardest times. So again, these mighty arms of God comfort us and they also are able to do incredibly powerful things he says do do you have the same strength in your arm job i think my muscles are a little bigger than yours god's saying or can you thunder with a voice like his will your voice have the same effect as mine when i speak to people instead of you then adorn yourself with majesty he says why don't you take on my glory he says can you do that array yourself with glory and beauty can you Bring the glory to yourself that I possess here as the eternal God in heaven. Disperse the rage of your wrath. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him. Job, can you humble people like I can humble people? Oh, no way. God can humble some people. I don't know. I know I've been a candidate. Maybe not you. But God knows how to humble people. God knows how to break people. And he says, tell me, Job, he says, if you want my role, if you think you could do your my job better than me or if, 
you know, uh, Eliphaz or Zophar or Bildad, any of you guys, you think you could do your job better than me. Can, can you humble people like I can humble people? Again, the idea is that recognition, again, of uh, no God. You're the one that can humble a proud heart in the most effective and powerful way. We just usually make people angry when we try and humble them. Verse 12, look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. The idea is if you can, then do it. Tread down the wicked in their place. Can you stop the wicked as God can stop the wicked? Hide them in their dust together, bind their faces in hidden darkness. Then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. In other words, Job, if you can't even do these things, do you think that you also can become a savior for yourself, that you can save yourself? The idea is, again, no, that's why we need God as our savior. Now, as we come to verse 15 and down through the remainder of chapter 40, we're going to see as well here as in chapter 41, God now talks about, he's talked about animals and different animals in the animal kingdom. Now he starts talking about these mysterious gargantuan large creatures that he created as well, which we have some degree of mystery. Now, let me just say, as we read through this, you know, I don't know better than any other commentator or those who try and grasp exactly what God's referring to here because he doesn't specify with terms that we know and can relate to. If you Google verse 15, what is a behemoth? You're not going to get an answer. The only answer you're going to get, the word behemoth just means a huge, monstrous creature. That's what you're going to hit. (laughs) The word means huge, monstrous creature. But he doesn't specifically say the lion, the tiger, the hawk, the donkey, words that we know and understand. So there is some degree of speculation. What really is being described here? I don't think you can be dogmatic. I can tell you this. Some people think this is a reference in these remaining verses to a hippo. Some degree of explanation that could be possible. Others think potentially it could be a reference to some type of a dinosaur that existed as well. And certainly some of the description there, I think could be fitting for that as well, potentially a brontosaurus. And it is very likely, it seems that from the sixth day of creation, that dinosaurs probably existed at that time and could have then well went extinct after the flood, when the entire environment on the earth changed after the antediluvian age, when the flood came, that that could have been the thing that brought an end to the time of the dinosaurs after the flood. Uh, Very possible. Again, you are free to pick and choose. We'll read through it, and you decide in your mind what it describes to you. But God says, look now at behemoth. He says, Job, observe this huge, monstrous creature which I made along with you. He's saying, Job, I made that. Do you see that monstrous, huge creature? I made that thing. Can you make one of those, Job? I made that, he says. I made behemoth. He eats grass like an ox. So apparently, to some degree, an indication of a vegetarian. Now, whether strict vegetarian or whether he liked prime rib too, doesn't tell us. But we know he liked to eat grass like an ox. Maybe he liked both. I don't know. Verse 16, see now his strength is in his hips. So very strong core. And his power is in his stomach muscles. He moves his tail like a cedar. Now, that's what makes some people say, ah, that can't be a hippo. If you've ever seen a hippo's tail, it spins real fast when it does its business to fire away from its uh, backside what it's doing. Uh, But its tail doesn't look like a cedar. A cedar is a massive, right, massive power. And he says, this creature, behemoth, this huge monstrous creature, it moves its tail like a cedar. So this is what makes some people say, hmm, That might make me question if it's a hippo. Maybe it's more like a brontosaurus uh, of the dinosaur, uh, you know, connection. Again, things to think about. The sinews of his thighs are tightly knit. His bones are like the beams of bronze. His ribs like bars of iron. He is the first. Now, the idea here is preeminent of the word first. In the, of the ways of God. The idea is that speaking of how large it is one of the largest beasts or creatures that existed. That's the picture there, first of the ways of God, first in its size. Only he who made him can bring near his sword. So God says, nobody else can defeat this thing except me because I made it. No person is able to take it down because it's a large animal. Surely the mountains yield food for him and all the beasts of the field play there. He lies under the lotus trees, so he's a little bit lazy at times. 
in covert of reeds and marsh. The lotus trees cover him with their shade. The willows by the brook surround him. Indeed, the river may rage, yet he is not disturbed. The idea is he's not fearful at all. Rivers can rage. It doesn't disturb him at all. He is confident, this creature, though the Jordan gushes into his mouth, though he takes it in his eyes, or one pierces his nose with a snare. So, again, this behemoth, is it a hippo? Well, some of what's described there, I think, is very fitting of that reality, and it could be a reference to that. You know, important to take into consideration when you look at just some of the statistics and what's described of a hippo. I mean, hippos can get up to 8,000 pounds. Uh, and many people don't actually recognize they're incredibly aggressive animals. And a hippo, though being 8,000 pounds, can run, they say, at speeds up to 30 miles per hour. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know if I can clock 30 miles an hour. I don't know if I want something 8,000 pounds chasing me at 30 miles per hour. And hippos are known to be one of the most aggressive animals that exist and actually rank in the top five of deaths of human beings. You know, we would think like snakes, lions. No, hippos. Hippos are in the top five there. You know, it's not like when you're a kid, you know, hungry, hungry hippo. You remember the little game, you know, they look so cute. No, hippos are, they're aggressive, dangerous beasts. So it could be that that's what this is referring to. Again, could be a reference to the brontosaurus, an animal, uh, you know, or a a dinosaur type creature that existed in those days that Job to some degree was acquainted of. Remember the time period that Job lived in? Uh, So that's possible as well. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 41, he now begins to speak about another creature called Leviathan. Now, as we look at Leviathan and Behemoth, again, the whole point God is saying is, look, I made these things, Job. I made them. Can you make things like that? If you don't have the power to make something like that, then Job, do you think you should question my power? I can make things like that, and I'm the only one that can tame them. I put them together, and I control them. Now he speaks of chapter 41, verse 1, of Leviathan. Can you draw Leviathan out with a hook or snare his tongue with a line which you lower? Now, the word Leviathan literally means twisting creature. That's what the term Leviathan means. And again, there's this unique mystical creature that God has created. And as you read through the description here, again, we can only speculate and guess. Is this some type of a dragon-type creature? Some picture you know a dragon-like creature that's being described some think this is a picture of a crocodile others think that what this is referring to is a large dinosaur different than the brontosaurus described in uh, verses 15 through 24 of chapter 40 Uh, some think it pictures something like you know these ancient mystical sea serpent type creatures that you hear accounts of of guys who were out in the seas you know over the you know last couple centuries that give accounts of these large sea serpent type monsters that exist out in the great deep i don't know the bottom line is god created it god knows what it is and the bible just refers to it as leviathan or this large twisting creature let me just say this, and I want to just read through this because, quite frankly, I don't have a lot to exposit to tell you what really is being described here. What I also think could be pictured here is a realistic creature, but I think it also could be something that personifies and is a type of Satan himself. Because when you read Revelation 12 and 13 and 16 and 20, Part of the reference to the devil at times is referring to him as what? A serpent, a dragon. These are terms that are used for Satan. So maybe God is using this creature that may be a real creature, but he's using it to personify and picture a type right before the last chapter of the book to picture spiritually Satan himself. Wouldn't that be interesting? Because this whole problem for Job has been caused by what? Satan. So maybe that's what he's saying. Job, you'll never conquer Satan on your own. I've been allowing, controlling, and keeping Satan under control. I'm the only one that can control Leviathan, this serpent, this dragon devil in your life. So with that being said, let me just read through this. And again, could be any of these things. He says, can you put a reed through his nose, pierce his jaw with a hook? Will you make many supplications or will he make many supplications to you? 
Will he speak softly to you? Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him as a servant forever? Again, can a person cause Satan to be subservient to them? Absolutely not. But Satan makes people his servants. And the only one who can make Satan and his purposes subservient to him is who? God. Because God created him as an angelic being, though he's rebelled, he still, remember, had to go ask for permission of God even to do what he did in Job's life. He must still submit himself, even in his wicked agenda, to the sovereign purposes of God ultimately. He says, will, he, will you play with him as with a bird? Will you leash him for your maiden? So again, if it's a big sea serpent, God says, yeah, he's yeah, kind of like uh, you know, one of these aquatic parks. I play with him out there in the middle of the ocean. You know, Here, fetch boy. You know, and, and this major sea creature, this Leviathan, God says, but that's how much more powerful I am. Will your companions make a banquet for him? Will they apportion him among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hand on him. Remember the battle. Never do it again. Indeed, any hope of overcoming him, the idea is as a man, is false. In other words, this is a beast, a creature, a dragon, a spiritual creature, that man cannot subdue with their harpoons or anything else. The only one that could subdue this creature, Leviathan, is God. And this is what he's reminding Job. Indeed, any hope of overcoming him is false for you as a person. You can't do it on your own. Shall one not be overwhelmed at the sight of him? No one is so fierce that he would dare stir him up. Boy, that reminds me of Satan. You don't want to stir Satan up unnecessarily. Who would want to dare to do that? Who then is able to stand against me? Who has preceded me that I should pay him? Everything under heaven, God declares in his authority, everything under heaven is mine, even that which he creates of all things. I will not conceal his limbs, his mighty power, his graceful proportions. Who can remove his outer coat? Who can approach him with a double bridle? Who can open the doors of his face with his terrible teeth, all around, so picturing the teeth on this creature, this beast, Leviathan. His rows of scales are his pride, like an armor that no one can pierce. Shut up tightly as with a seal. In other words, you can fire your harpoons or whatever, but they're not going to have any effect because it is something that can preserve and protect itself as a creature. One who is so near another that no air can come between them. They are joined to one another and stick together and cannot be parted. His sneezings flash forth light and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. So again, that sounds like a, a, a dragon type creature. His sneezing sning, flash forth light, picturesque language of like fire coming forth from the, the mouth and the nose area of this creature. He says, out of his mouth, notice, go burning lights. There's that picture of fire out of his mouth. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke goes out of his nostrils as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals and a flame goes out of his mouth. You don't want to be in front of the mouth of that creature. Strength dwells in his neck. And sorrow dances before him. Isn't that interesting? If that could be a reference to Satan, poetic language there, potentially. Sorrow is what marks what he dances over. You know, what did Jesus say of the devil? He only comes to rob, kill, and destroy. And do you know what makes the devil dance? Ruining people's lives. Causing havoc and sorrow in people's lives. That's what makes the devil get his jig on. When he can bring sorrow and pain and hardship, that's what he dances over. Interesting language, sorrow, it says, dances before him. The folds, verse 23, of his flesh are joined together. They're firm and cannot be moved. His heart, interesting, look at this, verse 24. His heart is hard as stone. Now, that's interesting. Again, a hard-hearted creature. Again, is that the rebellion of Satan? Possibly even as hard as the lower millstone. When he raises himself up to the mighty are afraid because of his crushings, they are beside themselves. Through the sword it reaches him, or though the sword reaches him, it cannot avail, nor does spear, dart, or javelin. He regards iron like its straw. 
Bronze like it's rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Sling stones become like stubble to him. Darts to him are regarded like straw. He laughs at the threat of javelins. His undersides are potsherds, sharp potsherds. He spreads pointed marks in the mire. He makes the deep boil like the pot and makes the sea like a pot of ointment. He leaves a shining wake behind him. One would think the deep had white hair. Again, he's describing how no matter what they did in their humanity, notice he describes there, he, he speaks of spears, darts, javelins using iron, bronze. He says, look, your slingshots, no matter what you do in your human effort, you in your human efforts cannot defeat him. You can't defeat this creature, Leviathan. Now, again, if it's a sea monster, if it's a, you know, a, some type of a very scary dinosaur, could all be true and make sense. But boy, isn't that a fitting reminder as well that in our flesh, the weapons of our warfare, the Bible says, are not carnal. They're mighty in God to bring down strongholds, spiritual warfare. Look, in our flesh, we are never going to be able to conquer, resist, or defeat the devil. It's only by the authority and the power of Jesus supernaturally that we can overcome the devil and not be overcome by him. It's a spiritual battle. And humanity is foolish to ever think that somehow, you know, I mean, this thing always freaks me out when people want to get like aggressive with the devil. We take you on devil in the day. I remember, you know, very, I won't mention names, very prominent, um, you know, uh, female who speaks all over, you know, in, in great crowds and so forth among the you know, body of Christ. And I remember hearing one time statement years and years ago. I'll never forget this. I heard when I get up in the morning and put my feet on the ground, the devil wants to tremble. And I'm thinking, I don't mean to break your bubble, honey. You may be talking to hundreds and thousands of people in your little crusades. But I really hate to discourage you, but I don't think that when you put your feet on the ground in the morning, the devil trembles. Quite frankly, I think when Jesus puts his feet on the ground, the devil trembles. When the devil comes knocking on my door, I don't even want to answer the door. Lord, can you answer that for me? I'll be in my back bedroom, locked in the closet, if not under the bed. But can you take care of that? Because he who is in us is greater than he who is in this world. And can Jesus and his authority defeat the devil and his attacks? Absolutely, absolutely. But look, folks, this is a fallen, rebellious, deviant, spiritual being. We have no, in our own flesh or humanity, ability to conquer and take on the devil. The whole world lies under the sway of the evil one. He's a powerful being. But in Christ and in Christ's authority, again, remember, it says in the book of Jude that we don't say, you know, I rebuke you, devil. The Bible says we say the Lord rebuke you. Oh, I rebuke the devil. What? You know, the Lord. Only the Lord can do that. Big difference of thinking we can do something on our own or conquer the devil. We'll just get beat up like a bully in the schoolyard. We need to let Jesus, our big brother, stand in front of us, and we just stand behind Jesus and trust in his authority. And again, how interesting if this is what Leviathan, this creature, is a reference to. God is emphasizing to Job, maybe to some degree, Job... All of this that's going on, this creature, Leviathan, this spiritual beast that's, that's attacking you, Job, I'm the one who's tempering and controlling the whole thing. And at any moment, Job, I and I alone can put an end to it because I am your defender. And you'll never conquer this on your own, but I can conquer this for you because I'm in control of even the wicked devil himself. Look at verse 33 and 34. Boy, these are definitely picturesque verses we'll leave on these he says on earth and that's interesting on earth this leviathan on earth there is nothing like him which is made without fear the idea is just fierce and fearless is it a creature is it a spiritual being verse 34 look at this he beholds every high thing what does isaiah say that the devil did when he rebelled against God, I will, I will, I will ascend to the place of the Most High. What did he, he wanted to ascend to God's role, right? Interesting. He beholds every high thing. He wanted to be like God. Look at the last phrase. He is king over all the children of pride. 
He is king over all the children of pride. Again, John 16, Jesus calls the devil the ruler of this world. Ephesians 2 calls him the prince of the power of the air. The Bible tells us in 1 John 5 that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked, indicating that the devil, to a degree, right, even like this Leviathan creature that kind of just ruled over everything because it was so fierce and powerful, no human being could subdue it. Only God alone could subdue it. The devil, the Bible says, has a degree of rulership, spiritually speaking, in this world, especially over those who aren't servants of Christ and in the kingdom of God. And here we read, he is king over all the children of pride. How does the devil maintain rulership over a person's life? There's the word, pride. Pride. Because what keeps people under the devil's rulership spiritually? Pride. People who are still under enslavement to Satan, the whole world lying under the sway of the wicked one, why are they under the sway of the wicked one? Because in pride, they won't humble themselves like a little child and admit they're a sinner and that only Jesus can save them. There's only It's human pride that keeps them in the bondage and slavery to, to the devil's rulership over their life. Whenever the devil begins to gain ground and starts to begin to try and steal territory back in our life, what's usually going on? The problem is our pride, right? It's our pride. But the good news is this, is that ultimately the devil is no match for the Lord. Look, what I love is that Romans 16, God says this, because look, spiritual warfare is going to happen. We see it in Job's life. We're going to culminate next time. We're looking at chapter 42 and the glorious ending that God brings. Look, the devil's at work, folks. He's attacking. He's always assaulting. He launches his attacks against our lives in different ways. It's spiritual warfare. But I love what Paul says in the book of Romans chapter 16. He says, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. God will do that. And when God says, you know what? I'm, I, that's it. That limit has gone too far that God at any given moment can crush the power, the head, the dominion, the rulership of the devil and bring his peace back into a situation. And and our job is to rest in that, to trust the authority of the Lord and not think that somehow in our human efforts, we're going to dethrone the devil and all his purpose, all this evil. We're going to dethrone that evil. We're going to. That's not how we operate as God's people. We pray to the king on a greater throne and say, Lord, you're on the throne. We look to your throne. You dethrone all the other wicked little thrones and things that are going on. Lord, you deal with that. You can humble people. You can dethrone people. And Lord, help me to just stay in humility before you and have a heart that's right. Let's stand. Let's pray.